Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, welcome back to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Fred Schenkelberg back to the show. We discuss reliability professionals asking for help. We discuss the IAOT and artificial intelligence. And we discuss how our reliability problems are not unique. If you follow Rob's Reliability Project, you may have noticed that we have migrated lately to a live webinar style uh, content model. And as such, I'm offering some new advertising packages to go along with it. I've had some companies reach out. They've they've noticed that some of the conferences that they were going to attend got canceled and they're interested in moving to this digital marketing type model. So definitely if your company sells products and services to engaged maintenance and reliability professionals, I have some new packages. So tell your marketing manager about Rob's Reliability Project and have them send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or you can hit me up on LinkedIn and send me a message there. I know we're all on lockdown period, and what I just want to make a note of before we get into the episode is I really hope that you're taking care of your health, both from a physical perspective and from the perspective of not getting you know, the coronavirus, but also from a mental health perspective. I know it's been really hard on me personally being on this lockdown. You know, I've had some anxiety. I've had some depression pop back up. And I really want people to lean into taking care of yourself. You know, whether that's going outside, going for walks, going for runs, doing workouts in your house. But also, you know, get those emotional connections Keep those going, whether that's Skype calls or Zoom calls with people that you're friends with or your family. Definitely take care of yourself, both physically and mentally during this period. So really, uh, if you're out there, I really hope that you're staying safe. I really hope your family's staying safe. And I really hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So thanks for listening. And now let's get into the interview with Fred Schenkelberg. Hey, guys, we are back and... Fred Schenkelberg, one of my favorite guests, is back on the show. Fred, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Now I'm blushing here. Favorite guests. What do I do? I don't send you that much money. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, but but no, but either way, I mean, I love to talk to you. We always we always seem to have awesome conversations. So I'm always excited for these ones. Well, well, we both recognize that. We were starting to explore, what are we going to talk about today? And then I think we got 10 minutes into a conversation and says, oh man, we should hit record. So that's where we're at. That's right. It's, we always <laughs> should, I should have hit record 30 minutes ago, but, but you know, that yeah, was my exactly. oversight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll just be more editing for you. That's all. That's right. So if everyone listening, I mean, if you don't know Fred, um, first off is check your internet. But second of all, Fred is the managing creator, managing editor for AscendoReliability.com. He's the co-host of the Speaking of Reliability podcast. He is the consultant at FMS Reliability, and he also lectures at University of Maryland. So Fred, I mean, he's one of the few people in the industry that probably does like four jobs like I do. So if you don't know who he's who he is, you're missing out. 
Well, you know, thanks for that intro. That's that's very flattering. And I, we're we're in the process of working on Ascendo Reliability to redesign its homepage. And one of the things I didn't want to list, you know, like how many podcast downloads and how many people are members and how, how big is our email list. Those are vanity metrics, really, right? What I was trying to sort out was, well, how many questions have we answered? And I started looking back. We've been at this for about seven years now, and it's over 10,000 questions that have come to us either through LinkedIn or directly or through comments that we can say, yeah, we help somebody answer a question. You know, and some people take more advantage of that than others, which is fine. Uh, but I, I, that's the part I like the most. And it probably ties all those things I do together is I, I like helping other people get better at doing reliability work. And, you know, it, I think of it as a, is a good thing. If, if Jane, if, if Rob, if you actually make a better product at the end of the day that I don't have to, you know, return or call for warranty or throw it away, I get better value out of what I purchase. And so it, what goes around comes around. If, if you can make products more efficiently, I, I benefit. So I guess I'm sh- selfish that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I've had a few calls this week with, with people who have reached out with, for help on their reliability program. And it was funny, the one on Thursday, the guy mentioned to me, he was like, when I reached out, I wasn't sure you would, you'd want to talk to me. And... You know, I kind of joked and I was like, well, when I started my podcast, I didn't think that people who wrote books about reliability would want to talk to me. But we're such an open and honest and sharing community that, you know, it's if you know, like if you're looking to have any questions answered, I'm sure you can hit me up. You can you can hit Fred up like we're both out to help you. So, yeah. Now, if it turns into to three days and I have to do a lot of research and stuff, I'll send you a bill. But it's uh <laughs> You know, and that's usually pretty clear right off. But if you're looking, I, 10, 15 minute type questions, no problem. Sometimes it makes more sense to get on the phone. And I agree with you, Rob, is that, you know, a lot of folks in the reliability world don't have a whole team around them, that they might be the only one that's called the reliability person. And, but the community at large, we're all trying to solve the same problems, right? We're all trying to uh, either create a better system or efficiencies or more uptime or, or a better uh, product for the customer. But it's, it, you know, we all have our own challenges and constraints and stuff, but it's amazing how similar they are across all these different industries, all these different places. So we, we have a common language and, and uh, the tools are not, you know, proprietary FMEA is an FMEA. So we can, we can talk about that stuff. No problem. Um, and that's fun. I, it, it is gratifying to know that if, you know, you do a paper at a conference and three people call you three months later saying, you know, it's, it helped them break through and make a real difference in their organization, or they saved this much money or did, you know, whatever. It's a way to make a difference in, in the world. So I like doing that. Yeah. And, and I mean, one thing that I always see is, and I'm sure you've seen it too, Fred, is, is when you go to these sites and they're struggling to make improvements, they always say something like, we're unique. And yeah. yet they have the same problems as everybody else. And so we can all help yeah. you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. No, there's, that's a fun, it, yeah, it's always that way. It, and every company is, it, it's, it, there's a, a, a phenomena called not invented here. Um, 
I, and I used to work at a Raychem Corporation, um, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and the, the CEO at the time, uh, uh, Bob Saldick, um, saw he had like 20 different divisions making different things and different product lines and stuff like that. And he was witnessing that a number of divisions were experiencing similar or identical problems, but they really were reluctant to go talk to the other division that had recently solved it, right? And, well, we're unique. We're different. And, you know, we can't take their solution and stuff like that. And and so he created an award, which came with a $1,000 prize for the person that gave the idea or helps another division solve the problem and for the person in that other division that that helped procure that idea or, you know, they called it stealing the idea from another group. And if you help the guy steal it or help the person get the idea, you both got an award, a little crystal thing and a thousand dollar check, which was pretty cool. But it, the intent was to make it okay to go talk to other people outside your group. And um, so it's, it's amazing the amount of knowledge that's out there. And you just have to ask or look for it. Um, I remember one place I worked, and this is completely off topic, what we were talking about before we started to hit record. Um, but I, I, I was working at Hewlett Packard, and I had a couple of questions. And this is just at the early, early, early stages of the internet. And so it wasn't like it wasn't Google or anything like that. And uh, my boss, she said, well, just, uh, ask somebody, you know, whether in our group or wherever we think somebody might have a reasonable idea how to answer it. And she said, you know, as a matter of fact, my theory is, is that if you ask anybody in Hewlett Packard a question, they will probably know somebody that, that knows somebody that can answer your question. And I said, well, let's test that. And so the, the world's expert at some packaging technology was sitting across the hall from me. And, and so we came up with a question and at the time we had a phone book. Remember those the paper <laughs> phone book? And this was a company paper phone book. And so I opened it up to a random page kind of in the middle. So it wasn't that random picked a name and it was somebody, it was like a sales engineer in Cincinnati, Ohio, about as far away from the nuances of packaging inner attachment and soldering processes, I think you could get. And I called her up, explained who I was and said, I'm, I'm sorry. I think I might've, you know, got a wrong number or whatever, but do you happen to know where I could find some information on X, Y, Z? And she goes, you know, I don't really know, but I bet you Bill in Fort Collins would know he's who I would call for that kind of thing. And I called Bill and I got halfway into the explanation and he goes, oh, you need to call the guy. And he was the person across the hall for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, it sounds like my job, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you mean? Is, is, is it really that, that you're that pivotal person that helps put things together for your organization or something or? No, I, I mean, I end up calling people who refer me to somebody else who refer me to somebody else. And then finally, I find the person I'm looking for. Yeah. But it, I mean, it you got to be patient a little bit and be honest and, and ask intelligent questions. So that, so that but I what my boss was telling us was that by and large, people want to help each other. Right. 
you know, if I'm calling you and saying, what are all your trade secrets? Well, no, they're not going to help me with that. If, you know, do you know of somebody that can help me with this problem? Or is there a way to attack this modeling issue? Or is there a better technique than what we're doing here? And, you know, things like that. I, I don't, I don't know. Do you have any idea? And this is one I don't know how to answer is how many people in the reliability world actually go to conferences and or get online or do the ask questions, right? So what proportion of our community um, gets off their chair basically and goes talks to other people to solve problems? I've kind of been thinking about like, what's the actual world size of people who work in reliability. But uh, I mean, we do, I mean, you see, like, what do you see? Like there's, there's gotta be at least 20, probably more conferences per year. And, you know, the average size, I would say, you know, a couple hundred people. So we're probably talking in the neighborhood of maybe 10,000 people who go to conferences yeah, Maybe, and that's only more. a fraction, you know, of the total population. I did a survey or a keyword search on LinkedIn and ended up with 50 to 70,000 people with reliability engineering in their job title or description. It was either the title or their description of what they did. I could believe that. The the thing I've seen at least recently with some of that is site reliability engineer some of those now are like their coding positions and not right. not what we would consider reliability positions yeah 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 you have to filter that out if you're looking for what i consider the real reliability engineers which if anybody's <laughs> a site reliability engineer listening to this i'm i'll have to apologize later um but it's because you know site reliability is they're trying to keep a website up and it's an uptime issue right how do we maintain this thing how do we uh, for all threats, how do we make it efficient? You know, all, they do all the same stuff we do, but it's all code uh, by and large. It, and they got to have hardware that works too. Uh, but the the concept is is that when I first started as a reliability engineer, um, I went to a conference. I I was being tasked to do an accelerated life test for a new product that was coming out. It was a new material set, and we needed to answer a question about it. How how likely is it to work for twenty years? And I had no idea. And so I, we had a bunch of trade journals around and one of them advertised a conference that was life data analysis, how to, you know, analyze data for an accelerated test. And I thought, well, I might find somebody there that actually knows how to do this stuff and I could learn a lot. So I met Wayne Nelson, who wrote the book basically on accelerated testing. And we've been friends ever since. We've run across our, our paths have crossed many times and we've enjoyed many meals together. And 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 so I've learned an amazing amount from him. And and that was just by sitting next to him at a conference and asking him a question. How do I go about doing this? And he, he was amazing. He pulled out a piece of paper and started doing um, log likelihood derivations <laughs> you just scared off half my listeners fred <laughs> yeah, sorry about that <laughs> you know but it's part of it is if you don't know there's probably somebody that does and you know sometimes you got to pay them for it sometimes you, you gotta you know you got to provide something to the conversation they're not going to do your homework for you um 
I always can spot the person that's sending me the homework problems. And it's like three, I got three of them in one day that were almost like phrased exactly the same. And I'm like, wait a second, you guys are in a class. You, no, you work it out. <laughs> I'm not doing your homework for you. Um, but by and large, I think, you know, there, there may be, I would estimate uh, upwards to a hundred thousand people or more that have, reliability either in their title or in their job function that that's part of what they're supposed to do they might be technically called an engineer level two or they might be a you know a, a oper, you know a man uh, i was a manufacturing engineer but i was doing reliability stuff um, things like that it, i think there's quite a few of us out there and the the lights opened up for me when I realized that there were other people doing this and have already solved a lot of these problems, you just need to go talk to them. You need to ask them, you need to introduce yourself and, and, you know, don't expect somebody's going to drop what they're doing for a week and help you solve a problem for free. But if you ask a reasonable question, they will help you get going in the right direction and give you the pointers and help and resources to, to solve it yourself. So it's, that was a turning point for me, and and it's become a huge part of my career is because I've always been in a position where I, I've known a lot of people, and I, I get to meet a lot of people. So people learn very quickly that, well, if Fred doesn't know the answer, he probably knows three people that do. And so I'm, I'm a good first contact for questions. And so along the way, I've learned a lot. And so, it, you know, as in your role, Rob, as, as you're doing this and you're fielding questions or asking questions and so on, it, it grows into a body knowledge that few other disciplines can compare, right? Because we span such a wide breadth of technologies and, and all kinds of systems and everything else and all through the organization. Now, the, I think the key point, which I think would make this a, a good uh, uh, key takeaway for this podcast is that as a reliability professional, you will never know everything ever. <laughs> it's just not possible, you know, but you certainly can learn how to ask questions and, and, and resource answers and learn quickly and do those things. I think that's a pivotal aspect of being a reliability professional. I don't know. What do you think, Rob? No, that's, I mean, that's a hundred percent true. And I always used to say like reliability, like most of what we do there, we follow processes and we, we ask those questions to the SME and that SME is either the shop floor guy, he's the mechanic, he's the operator, he's the OEM. Like it doesn't matter who the SME is, but mm -hmm. we're rarely the SME. Well, except for reliability statistics, which will scare away the other half of your audience. With that. <laughs> that's true, but but that's another story. <laughs> that's right. I was gonna say so. So, like before we jumped on, we were talking a little bit about IIoT, and I don't know if you wanna you wanna share your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I've been surveyed on this over the last I don't know three four years, and and getting comments, and and we talked about it. Um, I'm trying to remember when James's 200th episode for Rooted in Reliability comes out. I think it's this, as we're recording this, I think it's coming out in a few days. So by the time I think this one comes live, it'll have been in the past. So you'll have to link to it. That was one of the questions. You know, what do you think of the um, uh, art, this artificial intelligence enabled uh, sensor arrays and all the 
remote stuff, the internet, industrial internet of things. And my fundamental comment is that we already have way more data than we we've been collecting data in plants for decades and we've got terabytes of stuff that nobody ever looks at in the stuff we do look at. We treat poorly and we don't extract much information from it. At least that's been my experience. Anytime I get called into a plant and the, we don't need faster, better data and, and the inner, the uh, artificial intelligence piece over the top of it can really is only if you're collecting the right data and you know what you're trying to answer, you know, if you remember the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I'm sure you've seen that. Or I've never it. actually never read it. Oh man, that's required reading. Um, <laughs> but have you heard of the, the ultimate answer being the number 42? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, and then they forgot what the question was. So they're trying to figure out <laughs> what was that answer meaning, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. The Internet of Things is 42. It really is just another tool in the toolbox that if you know what question that answers, um, then you're ahead of the game. But what I find is it's, it's the same with like planning and scheduling. You can put in the shiniest, fanciest CS, CMMS system in the world, but unless you actually know what you're doing with planning and scheduling and, and setting up preventative maintenance schedules, you don't know how to interact with it. You don't know how to set it up. You don't know how to translate that to your shop floor. And so I'm a firm believer that you got to know how to do it. You got to understand the math. You got to understand the background, the process, map it out, have a working process, and then automate it. Now, Internet of Things and artificial intelligence can solve problems that that we just can't solve the standard way, the manual way, or or the old-fashioned way, right? The things we're doing now, because it it has an ability to to bring tools to the game that solve very complex problems. But if you're not solving the simple problems yet, it's you're wasting your money with the Internet of Things. You just really are. It's a new shiny thing. It's not going to really get you anything. Is get your shop in order. Get understand your failure mechanisms. Understand how your equipment is used and wears and, and behaves, and then you can start putting equipment or sensoring on it and, and artificial intelligence on it to say, oh, this is a bearing problem or oh, this is an alignment problem. But until you can do that on your own, the AI is just going to be confused. It's going to be a, equivalent to a two-year-old two running your maintenance program. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I mean, I agree. I, what, from what I've seen, like I've seen a few things. I've seen companies that like they're they're kind of the Microsofts of the world where they say like basically just give us all your data and we'll tell you what the like what to do. To me, that approach like I, I think that approach comes from like the finance world or these worlds that are sort of undefined, where you know where we're, we're looking at like if we're looking at a pump like it can only fail you know eight to ten ways and we can really define what those are and what they look like, and so why bother doing unsupervised learning when we could actually train it on the, you know, the, the, whatever that static number of failure modes is. So that to me is one. The other thing I've seen is, is like, is kind of what you mentioned where it's like, if you can't plan and schedule work, 
like, like, what are you trying to do? Like you're installing these sensors, you're going to get alarms for them. And then when do you actually action work? Like I, I worked at, uh, when I worked at tech, I wrote the proposal to get at the time it was, uh, it was called Matricon, but anyways, it was this IOT platform because all the hall, all the mobile equipment, the hall trucks, they come standard with sensors. Mm-hmm. And we wrote the proposal, we got it approved. And when we started hooking it up and then we started reading the sensors, we realized that a lot of the time we actually had to replace probably like it was some absurd amount, but it was like close to like 50% of the sensors. Yeah. Yeah. The weak link was the sensors themselves. Right. And it's like, well, why is that the case? Well, because the trucks have been running for so many years and we've never done maintenance on it because we've never looked at this data before. That's right. Well, then the old guys will say, well, what do we need to replace sensors that we didn't read for 20 years and the trucks are still running? <laughs> you know, take the sensors off, it'll keep running. You know, what we're doing in the past is work. you know, the hard part is if you don't already have a good program, I think adding a more sophisticated technique on top of it to get that next 1% of uptime, you're missing the boat. You still got the big chunks of 10% improvements to make, which doesn't need Internet of Things. Yeah, and, and and the other piece to that is is people, I think they don't necessarily understand what artificial intelligence is. Mm-hmm. And they think like it's, I, th- I think they're thinking that it's like having a Cat 4 vibration specialist plus, you know, a CLS oil analysis guy plus, you know, a level three thermographer all together in this box. Yeah, and yeah, no. It's not exactly that. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. Um, yeah, there's so, I mean, we were talking earlier about how similar a lot of our work is across organizations, but if you're not dealing with caustic soda, for example, that's a unique material. And so now all of a sudden temperature of your piping is, is critically important. But if you're dealing with crude oil, you know, you have a different set of constraints. And so, and each of us have the nuances, the way our pumps will behave and the types of wear and patterns they'll go, which is way beyond what a, a brand new baby AI system will understand. And so there's, there's a, a process there. But if you don't have the core knowledge and fundamentals in place, it's really, really hard to teach your AI system enough so that it actually is useful for you. But I, I think that's putting the cart before the horse so to speak, is you got to have a good horse first. <laughs> you got to have a good, you know, you can run, your, your system's got to be running fairly well. And then you can bring in these more sophisticated tools and get the next bit. I, I think that's the, my bottom line on it is, and maybe it's just the sample of, of clients I've had that are so far away from where that would be anything other than a shiny new object for keep two young engineers busy for a couple of weeks. no i i I agree and i think i mean i know when we spoke about it in james's 200th episode like blair frazier from cortic um he mentioned you can sort of skip steps um and i think i think people need to understand what he really means with that he doesn't necessarily mean that if you have a poor maintenance program you can get ai and it'll solve your problems but what he's saying is maybe if you're not doing vibration routes right now, you can skip 
starting to do manual routes and go right to sensors. But you still need to have those fundamental aspects of planning and scheduling, of precision maintenance practices, of being able to respond. Like maybe you're doing just on your regular PM, you you see found work and you, you can issue a corrective work order and go out and fix that. Like having that system in place and being able to respond to defects already, you still need that before you can jump to an AI. That's right. Well, I think you also need to understand the basics of what's that vibration sensor telling you. Because if if your philosophy is, and it might be a really, really well-working system where you wait for it to break and you go fix it, putting a sensor on there to tell you when it breaks saves you three seconds. <laughs> You know, compared to when the operator says, hey, the line's down, right? Um, you got to recognize what it's telling you and that it's giving you a precursor to a particular set of failure mechanisms. But if you if your strategy is still, well, we'll just wait for it to fail, then why bother? And if that <laughs> concept is missing, then yeah, that's a good question to ask is why bother? Absolutely. And I think the other the other piece that I see and I'm sure you've seen it as well, Fred, is people get kind of whole hog with it. So they go to a conference, they learn about this technology, they talk to a vendor, and then they go, we're coming back and we're putting a thousand sensors in and we're going to start fixing stuff. And to me, it's it's that same, like I've talked to, you know, seven or something AI companies on this podcast, and they've all said the same thing is basically start small and really prove value and scale it up as you develop the process, like, and you, as you get kind of more confident in it. And I mean, I, uh, to me, I, I don't think it's any different than doing RCM or root cause analysis, right? Like you're not going to say, we're going to do RCM on our entire plant today. Like start on one critical asset, prove value. That's right. That's right. It, I, it's a change management process, actually. It's, I don't know if it has a formal name or not, but given my military background, we, we would call it a, a beachhead process. You make a, a, a landing and you establish a beachhead and then you bring on some more resources and you make a little progress and you double down on what's working and you skip the ones that are not working. And, um, and you, you grow from there. And, and, you know, it's similar to what we were talking about earlier, that not invented here strategy. Well, just because they did it over at the Hershey plant doesn't mean that it'll work over here in, in our plant, right? And they might be right because they have a different culture. They have a different attitude. They have a different set of background and, and precepts and you know, all those kinds of things. There's enough differences that it may not transfer straight over. But let's learn about it. Let's build that culture and education and learning and do it one step at a time and build on what's working so that when you're ready to expand it, you can say, you know, look, line B over here has been running with this new system on it. And we've got, you know, five more points of uptime per week than anybody else does. And that's all due to this change in the process. Um, now we can point to something internally and say, we don't have to, not it, we, we, we can prove it works here. It works right here. <laughs> and it's easier to, to expand from that rather than saying, oh, we're going to top down, drop it into everything. And it's the change management alone will be, will probably kill that project. Now, have you seen any sites that are using it effectively? Um, the, 
Not really. No, the not the AI stuff. I haven't seen any plants that are using AI in one form or another. I have seen a few products that have built-in sensoring, and it's, they call it prognostic health management, right? So they're looking at vibration or temperature, current draw, things like that, but have a, a, a very specific model behind it saying, all right, this is triggering. We got to do replacement or maintenance or kick in a redundant system, things like that. Um, I've seen it in designs of systems, but not at a, not at a factory or plant level in um, cars, automobiles, right? You take it to the dealer, they plug it in. They, they do a ton of diagnostics and looking at your history and looking for those symptoms. And they're becoming more and more sophisticated where they're using um, not time or distance that you travel, but how hard you traveled, <laughs> you know, kind, of, <laughs> kind of like my ex-wife driving. If she was driving it, it would need a total rebuild versus <laughs> other people. Um, but I, so I think there's, I've seen it in those realms. I haven't, and I haven't been in that many plants the, one way or the other to really comment on and seeing it. Um, it's funny. It's, it's, I used to do a lot of plant visits and vendor visits and, and I was always looking for how consistently can they build the product, right? How, how well are they maintaining their equipment and servicing it? And uptime was a piece of it, but it was more of the quality output that they were providing and how consistent it was. And so just about everybody said they were doing SBC, but I only saw it was a, a, the, the shining example of, how to do control charts and manage the stability of a process was a, a small factory in Mexico that used to be owned by Bell Laboratories, by the uh, Bell phone company. And they did SPC manually. It was paper on the desk and the operators made the measurements and interpreted the results. And they could shut the line down if something was out of line or out of control and they would start the investigation and call in extra resources. It was textbook perfect the way that ran, that line ran. It, and they had such high ownership. They had such in the output and the quality of their product they were producing was amazing compared to anything else that, that was on the market. And, but they did it manually, right? And I don't, th and I asked them, it was at about the time that a lot of people were trying to automate SPC. And they said, we've heard all those pitches, but when you automate it, you lose that connection with the person that's actually supposed to be the observer and start the failure analysis and, and, and notice when something's working or not working. And if we feel, if we take that person out of the day-to-day, minute-by-minute interaction with that uh, measurement system that they won't pay attention to it anymore. And, and I think they're right. So I think the AI part is may fall prey to, and, and the censoring thing may fall prey to that too, is that the person that's the operator on the machine and, and the maintenance folks that are, you know, working on that machine all the time, um, they can look at a fancy screen upstairs all day long, but it's so hard to hear what's actually happening <laughs> when you're in the other room right? You don't have the audio sen censored in your office. So it's, I think you miss something when, and you take some ownership away from your operators and maintenance techs when it becomes too automated. And I think the ownership part is, is an essential element 
in order to get the level of care that you need to, to keep a system running. Yeah, absolutely. And like yesterday I interviewed Joe Adam and if you're listening to this, he was last week's podcast. Um, but that was one of his concerns when, when I asked him the question, you know, what do you, what do you see about the future and reliability? And he was saying like, one of the things he does every day is he, he does his walk around the plant and he talks to, he says hi to all the operators. And he's really trying to build that, you know, that relationship to the shop floor where they can tell him, Hey, you know, this looks good. This smells right. You know, I've even heard of some places where the operator would taste the product, even though it wasn't, uh, so you probably shouldn't because it wasn't yeah. uh, it wasn't a food grade product. That's right. <laughs> um, well, but, I mean, and a good operator will know when it when it looks right or it smells right or the color is right or I mean, it, independent of whatever the product is, is that when it's working well and they're getting feedback that this is good results they're getting, they they understand that when we're having issues, when we're having more jams, when we're having more scrap at the end of the line that they noticed those precursors that we're trying to get AI and sensoring technology to do, where I think we've got, we're just getting started with all this, right? The internet of things. It's, it's a balance. What are the things that our operators just can't see, right? The, a vibration sensor can pick up on a bearing failing long before an operator can, just because of the sensitivity of the measurement. And, and we just can't feel it, right, that a, a, a seller rounder can. And, and it gives us more lead time to, to be able to schedule some maintenance on that. Where there's other things that the operators are much better at, at doing. So it's, it's keeping that ownership there, I think, is going to be key. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want anyone who's listening to, to get me wrong. Like, I'm hugely bullish on this technology. I just think... Like it's, it's again, it's the basics of the maintenance program have to come first. And I think you, like you have to do that beachhead and you have to do it right. But I mean, there's going to be huge value there and there's going to be big wins. Like we, we're starting to see a few of them pop up. Um, like when I talk to the AI companies, like they each have a few examples of it done right. But if you do it wrong, you're wasting your money. If you do it right, there's wins there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's like a lot of different things. And, um, yeah, it, it was, we'll see. You know, it, we've been it's the shiny new object, in, in my opinion, in the last few years. And um, in some places, it'll be a great adoption. It'll if it really separates the performance of those companies, uh, the others are going to have to learn it or they're going to go away. And so it's. Uh, Time will tell whether it becomes this norm or not. Um, from a reliability aspect, I love it because it allows us to solve more difficult problems. And that's that's always fun. <laughs> that's what we're out for, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and for those difficult problems, you'll have to send us, uh, you know, some money for that. <laughs> that's right. But it's, it's not to say I don't like answering the basic questions or what I think are starting questions or whatever it's because that's what helped me get started. And I, I think um, it's that inquisitiveness and, and ability to learn whether it's with talking to your operators or listening to a vibration sensor, for example, or monitoring one, you still have to learn from it and move on. And 
understand the physics, understand the chemistries, understand the phenomena that are occurring, because that helps you then form that strategy of well, what to do about it in a coherent way. Um, so it's in the more you know that in, in a traditional or non-Internet of Things world, the easier it will be to recognize when the Internet of Things solutions will make a difference. In, but if you don't have that fun foundational pieces in there, it's really hard to judge what's going to be better for you or not. Absolutely. Now, Fred, just wrapping up here, you mentioned that there are some changes coming to Ascendo reliability. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about them? Um, well, the, 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 one of the things is the site in, in part, it's your fault, Rob is, um, <laughs> <laughs> of course, <laughs> and you and the other 25, 30 contributors to the site that are providing podcasts and articles and webinars and courses and books and, you know, all kinds of wonderful content. And when we first started the site, uh, I had no idea what we were doing. It was kind of three or four of us got together saying, well, if we work together, we might have a better chance of people finding us. And then if we do it independently, and that was really the start. And we all had the few of us that got it started, had this concept of, you know, all ships rise with the tide. If the site does well, we all do well. And, and that's still true is the site continues to grow and expand uh, the especially the regular contributors like you, Rob, I, I, I think you're doing better, right? You get more exposure, you get more people recognize your name, you, you get more attention, um, more people asking you questions, which then goes back to we answered questions as we started the conversation off, and then more people recognize that it's a place to go get to learn, to ask questions and get answers. And, and it's I think it's a, a virtuous circle kind of setup between the site, the people that are visiting the site, and the contributors to the site. Uh, I think we all win in that realm. The changes is really to the, um, the strategy we're using to help you find content. Right now we have, we're getting close to or just exceeded 1,800 articles, individual articles or tutorials or short videos, this content that's under the articles tab, you'd have to be really dedicated to go back through all that stuff. And the search engine isn't that terribly good, especially if you don't know what you're looking for in particular, right? But you want to learn about vibration analysis. The vibration analysis search might get you started, but it won't find you all the content that's there, for example. And Others, the most common question we get from people is like, I'm new to reliability engineering. My boss just said, you're the reliability person now. Get, you know, get busy, right? It's probably the number one question we get. And where do I start? And it usually is a couple of questions and then we can steer him to a handful of articles or podcasts or webinars to get them up to speed on the language and the concepts and the key starter places so that they can hit the ground running and ask good questions. And, and then they come back with, better questions like, well, one of my roles is I need to learn about you know, the data analysis coming off of this set of equipment. So where do I learn about the statistics for this? And so we go off and show them those articles. So the idea is, is to reorganize the site um, um, menu structure, essentially, and the, and the strategy on the homepage and other places is that it is to say, all right, you're new to reliability, go to this page. Here's a curated list of how to get started. And then what we want to do is add 
basically an email short course to it that's free in most cases. I think we'll be able to set it up for free. That basically says we're going to send you a, an article per day or two or three articles per day that has a, a lesson that's particular to your circumstance. So, right? If you're new to reliability engineering and want to learn about reliability statistics, well, here's the top you know 20 articles that will get you up to speed to be dangerous essentially right and then here's more resources here's the best books here's the where to go next depending on refining your questions is then here's more resources for you that's either on the site or off the site wherever they may be and so the the idea is is to to uncover a lot of the really wonderful material that's in the site but in a way that's aligned to why people are coming to the site. And so that that's what we're working through right now is, is the setting up the structure for that. And then on top of that, I, my a number of folks have ganged up on me and said that my font's not the best and I need more <laughs> white space and, you know, different colors and things like that. So there's going to be some cosmetic stuff to refresh the site and it's the design is 10 years old. So I don't, I think it's due. Uh, so it's getting a new coat of paint, but a getting a new um, architecture to finding content um, that more aligned with, I'm here to find X and here's a way to go find it versus here's articles, podcasts, webinars, and they're not sorted. It's like there's no card catalog right now. So awesome. we're, we're trying to put that in place. So Fred... Other than that, do you have anything to plug? Like you mentioned, you weren't really traveling too much this year, but where, where can people find you? Um, well, Ascendo Reliability, I'm lurking around that pretty much all the time. Um, and feel free to drop us a line, a question through LinkedIn or through the site or through a comment. I see all those things and happy to help. And, and I think that's the, right now that's our technique. Unfortunately, it doesn't scale. So as the site continues to grow, I'm spending more and more time answering questions. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy it because it helps me know what people are looking for and where, how we set up the site to be of better use for you. Um, the plugging part is uh, one of the things we're looking at doing, and it's on the homepage right now, and it will be for, for a bit, is we're, we're considering creating a body of knowledge and maybe a certificate type program or some way to guide your professional development. And so we've, we're looking at the existing certifications and existing bodies and knowledges that are out there. And we're, we're looking at them as they generally reflect what we used to do as an industry, you know, our old best practices and, and old techniques. And, and the bodies of knowledges for a variety of reasons are very slow to, to, uh, improve and and in and and it might my beef is usually because of the body knowledges are all talking about mtbf and well you and your <laughs> listeners know my opinion of that and so why can't we create a body of knowledge that helps guide industries and guides our profession rather than reflecting what we used to do well, how about we set standards and guidelines and, and set up principles for what we should be aspiring to right and with past uh, how to get there. And so it's that 
that's the biggest thing right now. And, and so there's a, a two-question survey on the homepage. And if you could take just a couple minutes of that and let us know your opinions of, uh, of what, what works and doesn't work with the certifications that are available today. And as we, it'd be invaluable in input to us to figure out, well, how do we craft something that is of, of the best value to you in the field? Love it, love it, love it. So if they want to do that survey, go to ascendoreliability.com. And definitely, like, if you're, if you do, yeah, check the podcast notes. It'll be linked in there. Fred will be tagged in the post and also linked in the podcast notes as well. So if you have any questions for him, feel free to hit him up. If you want to hit me up, send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or you can hit me up on LinkedIn as well. I'm happy to answer any questions. But again, you might have to send me a thousand bucks in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on how complex the question is. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) No, and and I mean, Fred, I appreciate you taking some time out of your Sunday to come talk to us. Oh, no problem. Anytime, Rob. Always like you... It said at the start, and, and it's it's a pleasure talking with you. So next time, we'll just have to hit record earlier. That's right. <laughs> then it'll be a longer show, a two-parter. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But yeah, it's a joy talking to you. It's, you know, I think we're of the like kind. We like talking shop, and, and we think about how do we best serve the folks that are like us, that are trying to make the world a better place, you know, by fixing one thing after another or, or improving processes. So it's, it's all good that way. I enjoy talking about this stuff. Yeah. We wouldn't host podcasts otherwise, right? <laughs> oh, no, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. So everyone listening, I really, really appreciate you listening. If you haven't yet subscribe to Rob's reliability project podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow Rob's reliability project on LinkedIn for the best memes in the industry. Oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.